0: Brothers and sisters, I have asked that you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, and we will pick back up with our lesson in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, good morning to you. And all the saints said, good morning. The title of the message this morning is The Walk of the Wise, Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians has been an extremely blessed book for us to study, because Paul speaks to us in this letter from God. In the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us what we need to know and what we need to do to be pleasing to God. Ephesians, then, you could say, is a big relationship book explaining how we relate to God and how we relate to each other in the church. It's a big identity book telling us who we were before and after God saved us. And that is just the case, brothers and sisters. God saved us. You did not save yourself. God saved you. And he's been saving people for 6,500 years after the fall of Adam and Eve when it became extremely necessary, abundantly necessary that God save us because we could never save ourselves. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of christ how far off were we we were spiritually dead unable to love god unable to seek god we were darkness according to paul But now in Christ, we are children of light, redeemed and adopted into the family of God. This is redemption. This is salvation. And Paul labors for the first three chapters of Ephesians to teach you about redemption, how redemption happened to you. We use the acronym EARS at CBC. EARS stands for election, adoption, redemption, and salvation, all of which are extracted from chapter 1, verses 3 through 13. God must give us ears to hear his calling and he must give us ears to understand how sublime his son is, the Lord Jesus Christ. God must send the Holy Spirit inside of you to do a work inside of your heart that you could never do yourself. He must give you ears to hear how sinful you are and how wonderful his gospel is. None of us were humble. None of us were seeking God. None of us were repentant. God redeemed us and gave us faith and gave us ears to hear that we are sinners and Jesus is a savior and he is the savior to which we ascribe our salvation because of the faith that God has given us. And as a result of God's sovereignty in salvation, Paul always explains first in his letters your calling, then he explains your conduct. He tells you what you need to believe so that you can rightly behave. He tells you the spiritual wealth you have in Christ and in your redemption, and then he tells you about how you need to spiritually walk. He tells you the privilege of being in Christ, and then he tells you the practice of being in Christ. Paul is an awesome coach. He knows who you are, and he asks the very best from you because he knows the salvation that's been placed onto you. What we see in our text today is more of the same in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. Paul is not asking us in this text to get wise. Paul is commanding the called to be wise. He knows who you are at the core of your being because you are new creatures in Christ. You're a new creation. You've been transformed. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And for this very reason, Paul tells us how to walk in this life, that is, how to live our Christian lives. In chapter 4, verse 1, at the division of this letter, moving into your conduct, he tells you, commands you, walk worthy of your calling. Verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, don't walk any longer in your old Gentile ways. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says to you, be imitators of God, which is hurtful, and walk in love just like Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he tells us to walk as children of light. Oh, that identity, that label, children of light, how precious is that? And today he says to us, walk as the wise in verse 15 of chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, this text is exclusively for Christians. It's for Christians. For all who are born again, born again spiritually, born again by God. If you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, can I tell you this morning, buckle up. Because Paul has some commands for your life. He's got expectations of your behavior, how you are to obey God in this life. And you need to be encouraged, and you need to be commanded, and you will feel shame, pain, and guilt this morning for your unwise ways. Buckle up. When you feel shame, when you feel pain and guilt as a believer, what must you do? Repent. That's what you did at the moment of salvation, is it not? You repented. If that held true then, it's going to hold true today. There's not going to be a bunch of confessional booths that we line up out in the foyer in the parking lot. It's probably more needful at that moment. We're not going to have that. You're going to repent in your own heart as I teach through this message where Paul commands you to be wise. And I'm going to make you think about all the ways in which you have been unwise, the ways in which you live unwisely. You need to confess your sin to God. You need to turn from your wicked ways, knowing God's forgiveness. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what about those who are here who don't claim to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? I would imagine we have friends here that are visiting and have not understood salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ what about you? what about those here who are not members of CBC who worship a Jesus of their own understanding why did God bring you here today for this message? how can you be blessed by Paul's commands which are directed at Christians? your blessing is in not only listening to the commands that Christ is going to place on us Christians listen, listen well Listen to how things have to happen in the church. Listen. Listen also to the contrast in the text. The Bible and Paul only know two kinds of people. The blessed and the fool. The righteous and the unrighteous. The wise and the unwise. Paul's contrasts demand you answer the question this morning. Who are you? Is that what God would say about you? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about yourself? Are you wise or unwise? And whose standard of wise are you using? Let's read together the text now as Paul offers this last walking command here in Ephesians 5:15 with the command to walk wisely. What does it mean to walk wisely? How can we obey this command? Read the text with me this morning and we will discuss the answers to these questions. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 15, reading through verse 20, he says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. 400 years ago, King Charles I of England ushered in evil days for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not a Christian himself, but pretended to be one because he saw the ability for control of the people through control of the church. He operated on worldly wisdom, Charles I did, making him spiritually unwise. You know, what's really interesting about the study of this guy is that He was a fornicator. He had a lot of children by a number of different women. Do you realize that the next person who's in line to be on the throne in England is the descendant of Charles I, the first person who will ever be on the throne as a result of Charles is about to be on Charles, right? Isn't that interesting? Under his tyrannical policies, Puritan, independent, and separatist congregations, they lost their pastors, and they were forced from their pulpits by English bishops who demanded conformity to the state church on behalf of King Charles I. What are wise Christians to do when evil governments enforce tyranny through state churches? Well, in June of 1628, at 40 years of age, John Winthrop engaged in a series of meetings to discuss the possibility of an American Puritan colony. Dustin Benji says Winthrop and all those vested in migrating to New England had one goal, quote, to live godly lives in binding themselves to the covenant of God in forming a marriage between Massachusetts and the Lord. Those who chose to join this company were to love brotherly without dissimulation, love one another with a pure heart fervently, and bear one another's burdens." Quote. Two years later, in June 1630, John Winthrop arrived in Massachusetts Bay on the Mayflower. He would serve as governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony for 12 of its first 20 years. We must ask the question, Where did John Winthrop's wisdom come from? Where does the wisdom come from to flee the persecution of your homeland? Where does the wisdom come from to govern thousands of people who join you on this journey? Where does the wisdom come from to overcome England's most evil days through your own hardship and your own self-sacrifice? Answer? Wisdom only ever comes from God. Wisdom is the direct result of God's salvation. Without salvation, no one would be wise. We are born sin filled fools to the core who have no fear of God set before our eyes. Solomon says in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we must understand John Winthrop's wisdom came from God because God saved him. John Winthrop wisely made the most of his time on earth because he understood and discerned the will of God. Now consider, just for a moment, the blessings that have abounded to the whole world on behalf of God's wisdom, courage, and conviction being given to John Winthrop, governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. How much good has come from the American experiment? How far and wide has the gospel of Jesus Christ been shared by this one nation under God? How many people have been fed? How many people have been clothed? How many people have been healed in hospitals? All because of the wisdom of John Winthrop and others who prioritized religious freedom and the right to worship God with accuracy above the luxury of their English estate. Through God's wisdom and provision, and their obedience and self self sacrifice, John Winthrop and many others sowed the seeds of the great national prosperity in which we have lived our lives. Our decadent lives are built on the backs of the sacrifice of God's servants. They discerned the will of God, they made tough choices. Truly, the Puritans and the early American colonists made the most of evil times. They walked in great wisdom. Brothers and sisters, here in the text, Paul calls us to be wise, just like John Winthrop and the Puritan settlers in New England. You see it here in the text, at chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul says, Therefore based on all that I've been commanding you, based on the salvation that I know that you've received, I'm, I've explained it to you in chapters 1 through 3. Therefore, as a result of that salvation, the one that comes from God, I command you, be careful how you walk. Now that's the New American Standard translation. And I believe that it's a little weak. The Greek word here translated be, be careful, be, is the word blepo, which means to see or to look. Or metaphorically, it can mean to spiritually have perception or insight. If you're reading from the ESV, it says, look carefully. The King James says, see, then, that you walk circumspectly. Quite literally, the Greek reads, look, therefore, carefully how you walk. Why do you need blepo in your life? No one's going to say blepo again except for three of you in the parking lot when you see something fancy happen around your car. Blepo, right? You need blepo in your life because blepo is a command for self-examination. Look! Look at yourself! Be careful about yourself. Examine yourself. Question yourself. How carefully are you living this Christian life that's been given to you as a gift of the grace of God? Acrobos is the word for Careful which gives greater intensity to Paul's command to look. John MacArthur says, careful has the basic meaning of accurate and exact, and carries the associated idea of looking, examining, and investigating something with great care. Clint Arnold said, acrobos, careful, strongly underlines the importance of engaging in intentional and focused moral introspection. It compares, says Arnold to the kind of care a judge would take in investigating a case. That's awkward, brothers and sisters. Is it the case that the secular judges who are deciding cases in superior court right now are more careful about those cases than you are about your Christian walk? What are the chances that your Christian life has come with great, personal, careful, regular examination? How many patterns and habits from your old way of life still linger around with you even today? How unwilling have you been as a Christian to look at yourself and examine regularly your thoughts, words, and deeds? Friends, the life of a Christian includes willingly, even happily, examining our ways. Wisdom begins with blepo. Write it down. Wisdom begins begins with blepo, look, see, examine. Look, therefore, carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Walk here, again, is metaphorical. It's a word-picture way of saying live or conduct your life. Wise is the Greek word sophos, which comes from the word sophia, which means wise. Paul uses sophos to create this extremely important contrast in the text, The contrast between the wise and the unwise. Turning your Bible to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. You know this word sophos as it was discussed last week by Chris Martin, who I'm very thankful came and preached to us an important message for us to hear. Sophos. A second year high school student or college student is called a sophomore, which is the combination of sophos for the wise and the word moron for fool. A sophomore, then, is a wise moron or a wise fool. Now, that's a comical way of saying unwise, right? That's comedy. Sophomore. Unwise. In our text, Paul creates the contrast between the wise and the fool with a single letter attached to the front of sophos, the letter A, the alpha privative. Sophos is wise. A sophos is unwise. Just like atheist is not a believer in God. With the wise and the unwise, we have one of the greatest contrasts that we see in the Bible. The Bible knows only two kinds of people. There are only two ways to live expressed in the Bible. Two classes of citizen, you could say. You're in Psalm 1, where the portrait of this contrast is powerfully painted in the opening psalm. Read it with me. The psalmist contrasts the only two ways of life known in the Bible, saying in Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be as a tree planted by streams of water. His leaves also do not wither. He yields his fruit in a season. His leaves also do not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Not so for the wicked, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is the delight of the blessed man in the text? It is very clearly the law of the Lord, the word of God, the Bible. What a treasure. Why? Why? Because it is the Bible that tells him all that he needs to know about his creator. And friend, it is the Bible that teaches you to fear God, giving you wisdom from God, causing you to love God because you understand his power and his plan and his eternally good purposes for all of our lives. Turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 7. Wisdom demands your continual consumption of the Bible. First, in that you know God. Second, in that you know how to bleppo yourself, how to look and evaluate yourself. Are you like a tree firmly planted by streams of water? Do you yield good fruit in the proper season and have leaves that won't wither? Does your life show spiritual fruit, spiritual prosperity? I praise God for this. Spiritual prosperity has nothing to do with gaining and collecting worldly treasures. That's a great joy to all of us. That completely levels the human experience that playing field of the human experience. We are after spiritual prosperity, not earthly treasures. God is not pleased in how much Bitcoin you have or you had or in your cars or your houses or all your worldly treasures. God is pleased when you live your life His way, on His terms, and not by the ways of this world. Again, there are only two kinds of people in this world, brothers and sisters, only two. Two classes of citizens, Two paths of life that you can live. Jesus knows them well. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with these popular paths. In chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, the wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. You're in Matthew 7. Look at verse 13 with me. Read with me the only two ways Jesus understands how you can live your life, where he says in verse 13 of chapter 7 of Matthew, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad, that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow, that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The wide path is for the unwise. The narrow path is for the wise. Life only has two paths. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. John Winthrop was born on January 12, 1588. He was raised in a Calvinistic Reformed family that gave great support to the under, uh, underground Protestant network during the reign of Bloody Mary of England and Charles I. His family enjoyed the wealth and privilege of the upper middle class due to the success of his grandfather, who was a cloth worker in London. John was enrolled at Cambridge University at age, at the ripe old age of 14, with every intention of pursuing pastoral ministry. And yet as the Lord would have shaped young John's life, John married Mary Fourth in March of 1605. Which? 1605, 1588, do the quick math. Yeah, you find out that John Winthrop married at age 16. Don't wait around, young guy. You have no reason to wait around. 16 is nothing. He married a 21-year-old woman named Mary Forth, and by age 20, with a wife and two young boys, John felt himself to be a failure by family standards, standards set by his grandfather's hard work. And he withdrew his name then from pastoral ministry. Ultimately, he headed back to the family's estate. The estate was called Groton Manor, quite a wealthy and luxurious estate. He could have then minded his own business just living on the family estate with his young family, and made a life of luxury for himself, managing the, the manor's lands, harvesting the honey, tending to the garden, watching the kids grow up with the sheep and the goats and the cattle. This is the idealistic, mini-farm, homestead, off-the-grid mindset that so many of you all have. <laughs> he could have done that. John Winthrop didn't do that. That's not what he did. He redeemed the time. Instead of sulking and embracing the thought of failure, he got involved in local politics and in his 30s was appointed a judge. This service uniquely prepared and qualified John to serve as governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the United States of America. At that time, a simple little colony in Massachusetts Bay. Praise the Lord that John didn't have the internet to distract him. Praise the Lord for allowing John to have wisdom And not only have wisdom, right? To do wisdom. Objectively, wisdom can be evaluated. Evaluated right here in John Winthrop's life. We see wisdom objectively in this man's life. And the question for us is, how can wisdom be evaluated? What are wisdom's criteria? How can we know our actions are wise? How can we walk wisely? Paul answers these questions in the text by presenting three criteria for calculating a wise walk. It's here in the text that Paul provides three waypoints on the path of wisdom that align our lives with the Lord. How can we calculate a wise walk and what three waypoints on the path of wisdom align our lives with the Lord? Number one in your notes, review your life from verse 15. Number two, redeem your time in verse 16. Verse 16. And number three, realize the Lord's will in verse 17. Review, redeem, realize. Review your life, redeem your time, realize the Lord's will. This is the path of wisdom. And you'll notice that we've already covered point number one in your notes. Review your life. Review the notes. Review your life. Bleppo, look, examine, evaluate, inspect your life carefully. That's point number one. That's the first waypoint on the path of wisdom. Review your life. The Christian life demands introspection, review, evaluation. Your walk before the Lord is not wise without self-evaluation, and in self-evaluation, even going further, your request for the help of others in evaluating your strengths and weaknesses, and even your unwise ways. Now, if you're honest, that's just not something that you wanted to hear this morning. You didn't want to hear that this morning. But that is the wise way. That's the way of the wise We all want to run and hide from careful evaluation of our own conduct. That whole Rodney King gospel, can't we all just get along? I sin, you sin, we all sin. Hey, let's just get along. That's not going to work here, brothers and sisters. That doesn't work here. We need to be wise. We need to walk wisely. God has called you, has he not? He has chosen you. The redeemed and the saved, that's what you are. And as such, we will do the evaluation necessary to bring greater glory to God by redeeming each moment of our life, which takes us to point number two in your notes. Redeem your time. Point number two, redeem your time. The second of three waypoints on the path of wisdom. Redeem your time. Verse 16, Governor John Winthrop had a niece. Her name was Mary Downing. She married a wealthy Boston merchant. Interesting story here. Governor Winthrop... Mary Downing, his niece. Mary Downing was the great-grandmother of Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards, a man considered by many to be America's greatest theologian. Go figure. Generational faithfulness? That's pretty awesome. Jonathan Edwards felt great conviction about redeeming his time, so much so that he authored for us these wonderful 70 resolutions in his early 20s to direct his thoughts and actions toward wisdom and greater glory to God. Jonathan Edwards... Resolution, resolved, number five, resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. He says in resolution number 41, resolved, to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. Perhaps Jonathan Edwards was convicted by Paul's words here, in chapter 5, verse 16 of Ephesians, where Paul commands Christians to be found in verse 16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Making the most comes from the Greek word exagorazo, which carries with it the idea of buying back, buying out of, buying out from. It's a marketplace terminology that carries with it all of the spiritual weight of redemption, redeem is probably the best way to translate ex agorazo. You see this if you're reading a King James version. Redeem is in the middle voice, which means, to, uh, which means the command is, is for you. The middle voice is reflexive. It means the command is for you. It is for you to redeem your time. You redeem your time. Buy back your time. You've got enough of your own time to redeem, so stay focused on fixing you. good i didn't see anybody tapping their wife's leg that's good okay yeah redeem your time focus on you i'm mindful of jesus words in the sermon on the mount when he said in matthew six thirty four, so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough of its own trouble not only do we have enough trouble in redeeming today moreover your life has enough hours that need to be redeemed just considering your own unwise ways Those are the hours we want to redeem. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12. For the sake of our time this morning, I'm going to believe that you have a good grasp on why we are to redeem the time. You remember that Paul said in our text there in Ephesians, because the days are evil. That's what he said. The reason why we redeem the time, because the days are evil. They were evil 2,000 years ago. They were evil 400 years ago in England. The days are evil now. Are we all resolved to the fact that evil is the order of the day in America and the world? Evil is the soup du jour, right? It's the soup of the day, evil. That's what it is. That's what's being served up. Okay, so that's a baseline, right? That's a starting point from which we can understand all biblical reality because the Bible says this about the world that God cursed with humans, every single one of us, being born in sin. So understand that as a biblical reality. You don't want to miss that that's a starting point. And from there, James Montgomery Boyce says, making the most of time is to enter into this conflict and make a contribution for good, even, I say, for the glory of God, that righteousness will be done on this earth. We know the conflict, and we must go into the conflict. We all value that the man that hears the gunshots and doesn't cower and run away, but runs toward the gunshots. It's also helpful to know God is fully in charge of all the conflict in this life and our participation in it. John MacArthur says, God has set boundaries to our lives and our opportunity for service exists only within these boundaries. And so God's expectations for you are entirely reasonable brothers and sisters you are not obligated in and of yourself to redeem the world no one's asking that of you god alone is in charge of global redemption and he's done that perfectly in his son you are in charge of personal redemption and even that the lord is leading you through in the power of his spirit you should have questions though you should want to engage this personal responsibility that we see in the Bible that every single human being has before God, a personal responsibility, you should then ask the question, how, how do we make the most of our times? Practically, what ways can I redeem my time? Okay, I'll play ball a little bit here. Sometimes it's best to allow you to just grasp the principle and tuck it into your own life, but this time I'm going to engage in a little more specific application for your benefit, since you asked for it. What does redemption of your time look like? Number one, get off your cell phone. Like you over there and you. Get off your cell phone even while you're listening to a sermon. There's time to be redeemed. That device is a draw on you. Get off of Instagram. Get off of Facebook and Twitter. You young men, get off of the Xbox and Fortnite and your first-person shooter games. Now, those are quick and easy targets, but it only tells you the negative half of the story that's only the negative you need the other side the positive half of redemption as well what will you do instead of first-person shooter games what will you do instead of Instagram how will you replace your habits and patterns of your behavior let me give you the positive side of redemption as well husbands and wives on the one side you know that you need to end your silent treatment toward each other and you need to positively then think about engaging marital counseling. You need to walk through what I call the process of peace, which we'll close our time with today. Every one of us positively needs to be reading and memorizing the word of God. You don't know, young men if you're going to be the next John Winthrop. You don't know that. God does. And he's going to use your time in his word, memorizing, meditating on his word to lead the next generation. You need to evangelize the lost. You need to get past yourself. You, you need to delight in being told no after you've poured your heart out sharing the gospel with somebody. Sharing the gospel is exhilarating. It's more exhilarating than first-person shooter games. It's a perfect place for redemption of your time evangelism door to door knock and share can i just tell you this as well i have great tracks in my office that have my name and email on them and i'm happy to pass them out to you to share with your friends if you want gospel tracts before you leave today come and see me i've got them for you practice goodness toward one another Love others intentionally. Love others like you love yourself. Be hospitable. Host a game night. Clean up your house. Ask people to come over. Buy them dinner. Buy them lunch. Share time with each other. Serve in the children's ministry. I mentioned we have a parenting class that's going to come up in the next couple months. Week after week, we'll need child care. Are you available to watch the children for those who attend so that they can engage better parenting in their own homes? Service to your church, service to your neighbors, sacrificial service to other people. Maybe you would say, Oliver, I have no skills to offer my neighbors. Well, then get back on your phone and get on YouTube and get some skills. Automotive skills, (laughs) Excel spreadsheet skills, nunchuck skills for entertainment purposes, (laughs) small engine skills, gardening skills, get some skills. And if you're paying attention to this list, redeeming the time goes back to the first two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That is redeeming the time. Redeeming the time, friends, is entirely relational. I'm going to say that again because I want you to write that down. Redeeming the time is entirely relational. How many of you have broken relationships in your home, in your family, at work? Raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. It's all of y'all. I know that. All of you have broken relationships. And I ask you the question, are you taking the steps today? Have you been taking the steps to redeem the time by redeeming the relationships? Husbands, let me ask you this. Are you wisely walking with your wife, redeeming your time with her? How much of your time do you spend thinking positively about your beautiful wife? How much time do you spend thinking negatively about your beautiful wife? Which one is greater, the positive thinking or the negative thinking? How many people would you guess are thinking negatively about your wife daily? Could it be the case that you, husband, are the most negative thinker in the world about your wife? That's hurtful. Is that wise? Are those negative thoughts helpful? In those negative thoughts, are you glorifying God? Don't you see? Walking wisely demands redemption of relationships in our thoughts and words and deeds. You cannot fully redeem your time if you are not taking your thoughts captive and making them conform obediently to Christ. Wives, this same principle goes for you as well. Are you the only one delayed in respecting your husband? Are you the only woman who rolls her eyes disrespectfully at him? Do you take your negative thoughts about your husband captive? What are you doing to redeem your relationship with your husband, whom God so graciously gave to you? You're in Luke chapter 12, which many of you would prefer I read as opposed to convict you about your unwise ways. So we will read the Words of Jesus, where Jesus is going to tell us in Luke 12, verse 15, a parable about a man who did not redeem the time. The rich man in the parable lost sight of relational redemption and instead sought to warm and please only his own heart. What do you call a man who does not redeem the time relationally? Let's read Jesus' words together and find out the answer to that question. Luke records that Jesus said in Luke 12:15. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed for, e- for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good li- goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Fool! is what the rich man is called, fool. Not wise, fool. He had not consulted God on the production of new barns for himself, nor did the barns include investments in relationships with anyone else around him. His life was not self-sacrificing, but self-serving. He planned to redeem his time on his own terms like a fool because his redemption was void of relationship to God and relationship to man. Who, who will have these barns that you've prepared, says the Lord. Satan would love nothing more than to help us all secure all the food and all the barns and all the storage places for our cars and our toys, extra homes for ourselves, and all the worldly travel that we can afford Insomuch much that it comes at the cost of our relationships with God and man. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 5:16. As I ask you the question, what legacy are you going to leave? The legacy of the fool with new barns full of food and supplies? Or the legacy of the wise man whose relational cups were overflowing with love from a life of sacrificial service to God and man and church? Are you living your life in such a way that you will leave an indelible mark A positive, indelible mark on the people that are nearest you? Are you redeeming the time, friend? Because the days are evil. Harold Honer says, Believers are commanded not to let the God of this age intimidate them, but to take advantage of every opportunity in this immoral environment to live a life that pleases God. And I'm saying to you, God is pleased in right relationships, even, I dare say, redeemed relationships. God is pleased. The will of God is in redeeming relationships, which brings us to point number three in your notes as we consider the wise walk, the walk of the wise. The third of three waypoints on the path of wisdom, number three in your notes, realize the Lord's will. Number three in your notes, realize the Lord's will. John Winthrop was appointed as an attorney at the court of wards. The court of wards, think children, okay? wards of the state. Court of Wards in 1627. The Court of Wards handled large pieces of land and huge estates in England that were given to the heirs, to children who were too young to assume responsibility over them. And So Winthrop was basically, get this, a state-appointed trust fund manager. What are your thoughts on that? State-appointed trust fund manager? (laughs) No, no, please. Do you want the state-managing trust funds? Absolutely not. Dustin Benji says, As one might imagine, such a system was often an open sewer of corruption and mismanagement, often making wealthy men out of those who accepted bribes from people seeking license to do as they wished. Benji goes on to say, John soon realized he would be unable to fulfill his duties and maintain his integrity. For John to lead as he wished according to the rule of God, he would not be able to remain in England his attention increasingly turned to the new world. John Winthrop walked wisely, redeeming his time with a relational focus. He wanted nothing to do with the corruption and the corrupt practices taking place in the court of wards in London. He desired good, right, and just relationships with men and a relationship filled with integrity before the Lord. And as a result, John Winthrop was no fool, and he did discern the will of the Lord in his life. This is the third waypoint on the path of wisdom. We must determine, identify, realize, and understand not only Jesus' revealed will, but also Jesus' eternal will. Read it with me in the text in verse 17, where Paul says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, you see the contrast, don't you? The fool doesn't know or understand the will of the Lord. The wise man is expected to understand and come to realize the fullness of the Lord's will. Now, brothers and sisters, when I think about the Lord's will, which I'm going to all this week and come back and share more with you to start our lesson next week, I am absolutely amazed at the thought of the Lord's will and our ability, commanded in Scripture, to discern the Lord's will. That's amazing to me, and I hope it is to you as well. Lord here is the word kurios which refers to Jesus. Paul uses kurios for Jesus in Ephesians 26 times telling you he is Lord, sovereign, master. You need to know Jesus will How can we, sinful, wretched, broken people, know the eternal will of God, of Jesus himself? Number one, Jesus places his spirit in our hearts to live in us forever. That's how we first understand the will of Jesus. His spirit lives in us. As believers, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. In verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul says, We have the mind of Christ. Now this is the result of biblical salvation where the Holy Spirit performs the eternal will of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit by regenerating us, giving us spiritual life, making us to be born again. Second, in understanding the will of the Lord, the will of Jesus, Jesus has given us his word. He's given us his word that we might know his will. He's given us his spirit and his word that we might know his will. I told you earlier that Ephesians is a relational book. The whole Bible is a relational book. Our Lord wants nothing more than the perfection and purity for us in our relationship with Him. And He spared no expense to make sure that we have everything we need for life and godliness even to the point of understanding the will of the Lord. The Lord has plainly revealed His will in His Word. And his will has everything to do with redeeming relationships. Look at the next section of our text in Ephesians at at chapter 5, verse 18 through chapter 6, verse 9. You you see in chapter 5, verses 15 and 17, a command to walk wisely, which includes three waypoints to walk on the path of wisdom. We're studying that today. What does Paul address immediately in connection with wisdom, redemption, and Jesus' will? Paul rattles off ten relationship redemption strategies, starting with our Eternal relationships in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, where the focus is the Spirit, the Son, the Father, in addition to one another, the brothers and sisters in the church. These are eternal relationships in verses 18 through 20. Then he moves to our most significant earthbound relationships in verses 5, 21 through chapter 6, verse 9, where he speaks to wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters. We'll be covering these 10 relationship redemption strategies in the following weeks. For now, you need to understand those walking wisely will realize the will of the Lord. And the will of the Lord is redeemed relationships. The will of the Lord is redeemed relationships. The Greek word here, the verb is tsunami, which means to understand or to realize. Clint Arnold says this verb goes beyond simple cognitive awareness to applied Knowledge. It it reminds me of the Hebrew word shema. Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6 4. Shema for the Hebrew mind means understand, know. It means know, understand, hear, listen, hear, understand. You can't have the one understanding without the other. It's a package. And so here, too, understand the will of the Lord means applied knowledge as well, which means that you need some tools to apply this knowledge. This verb demands that we ask the question, if we can know the will of the Lord, how do we apply it? Does the Bible have a wisdom tool for fixing and redeeming relationships? Turning your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 9. Jesus is our Lord and he is our Redeemer. He delights in redeeming us for more redemption. And I want you to listen to the redemptive will of the Lord, which is set on redeeming eternal relationships. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The will of the Lord was death for relationship. Death for redemption. Now, how do we know that we are the redeemed? What is the path of relational redemption with God? You're in 1 John 1, verse 9. Uh, Let's read the text together and ask yourself this question. What aspects of Jesus' redemption of us create a pattern that we can apply to our relationship with others? Did anything happen in our salvation and redemption which is not only beneficial vertically but horizontally as well? John says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So what is the will of the Lord? Confession and forgiveness of sins. If confession and forgiveness of sins is beneficial in your relationship to God, how much more is confession and forgiveness of sin beneficial in your relationships with one another? James says in James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another relational redemption comes through confession In counseling. I love to teach what I call the process of peace, which is the path of relational redemption. Friends, you are not wise. You are not redeeming your time. You are not applying the will of the Lord if you are not daily practicing what I call the process of peace. Some of you overachievers in your in your chair as you slid forward right? that with your, with your notebook like. what's the process of peace what is it tell us great glad you asked the process of peace here's how the process of peace works first I would have you know the process of peace is travel size it fits right on your left hand your left hand this is the process of peace it fits on your left hand the process of peace begins with confession which fits on your pinky finger because far too often confession is the tiny little thing that Christians won't do we won't confess our sin enough, not to God and not to others. That's a shame. It's shameful of us. But we must. Confession is the starting point for peace in all of our relationship. It's the pinky finger on your left hand. Confession. Second on the process of peace is repentance. The ring finger, the covenant finger. What was Jesus' message in Mark chapter 1, verse 15? What was his message? The gospel? Repent and believe. What makes repentance different than confession? Confession says, You see that? I sinned. This is my sin. Repentance says, You see that? I never want to do that again. That's what repentance says. Repentance is metanoia, it is turning from evil and turning to righteousness. And repentance is our activity that confirms God's covenant with us for eternal life. Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. He says in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Which means, repent, brothers and sisters. Don't perish. What is the fruit of repentance then? Well, coming soon, it's our eternal life with Christ forever. But for now, our repentance means forgiveness. Third, then, in the process of peace is just this, forgiveness. The third aspect in the process of peace is forgiveness. It marks the the middle finger, the high point of salvation, is forgiveness. And the tallest finger on your hand is the middle finger. The middle finger is forgiveness. What does John say in 1 John 1.9? He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God's forgiveness is certain because in his nature he is a loving and forgiving God. And so forgiving is God that no one in the Bible asks, God, will you forgive me? Question mark? Not at all. To the contrary, believers in the Bible speak to God and they say, Father, forgive. Period. Our forgiveness is assured by the promises of God by his own character. He cannot lie. He is a forgiver. There's a fourth in the process of peace after forgiveness is restoration. Restoration is the trigger finger, the action finger. John the Baptist warned the crowds who had gathered for his baptism of them in Luke chapter 3 verse 8, saying to them, "Bear fruits in keeping with repentance." When we repent and we are forgiven, our hearts remain broken, contrite and humbled by our sins. Restoration includes the attitudes and the efforts that display genuine remorse and regret over all of our wrongs that we have caused. Fifth in the process of peace is obedience. Obedience is observed on your hand as the opposable digit, the thumb, which holds everything together. If only Adam and Eve would have obeyed. If only we would obey. Obedience is the opposable digit. It holds everything together. Moving forward in life, obey God. Do what is right and good and just always. If you have been doing obedience to God, you would have never fallen into relational failure. And when you fail because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, understand we have this process of peace. Again, if it worked with God to restore that relationship, how could this not work with man to restore these relationships? The process of peace itself is obedience to God, as we read in 1 John 1.9. Brothers and sisters, why consider the process of peace? because the process of peace is a relational redemption tool for those who are wise. This morning we were commanded by Paul to walk wisely. We found that the path of wisdom has three waypoints. Those three waypoints on the path of wisdom, review your life, blepo, right? Redeem your time, realize the Lord's will. We can see clearly in the context of Ephesians 5, And throughout the whole of the bible that god's grand plan is relational redemption for his glory god's great glory or god gets glory in in redemption of every single sinner that he saves moreover god gets glory when we carefully evaluate and redeem our sinful ways during our evil days on this earth living and learning and loving the will of the lord as we are found daily practicing the process of peace redeeming broken relationships brothers and sisters can you imagine the community, the love, the joy, the unity that we will experience when we are found walking wisely, redeeming relationships together all the days of our life. For the glory of Christ, John Winthrop wanted all of Massachusetts Bay Colony to walk wisely. He said, John Winthrop did, he said this, for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. He said that 400 years ago. Brothers and sisters, I say that to you now. We shall be as a city on a hill. The eyes of all the people shall be upon us. And for those who may be visiting today, let it be known to you, we at CDC choose wisdom, the will of the Lord, and humble self-examination. And we ask you, will you join us? Will you humbly recognize your old, unwise sinful ways will you do the will of the lord with us beginning today with your repentance for your sinful ways and rebellion to christ will you join us in redeeming the time as we walk together as the lord's wise children will you pray with me father in heaven we thank you for today and the conviction that comes from recognizing wisdom we see wisdom. We understand wisdom. It's right there in the Bible. And yet we are those who fail to practice wisdom. We, we live in this tension of having been made new creatures and at the same time still dealing with the flesh that so easily entangles us in the snares of this life. And Father, we pray that messages like this from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17 would pour over our minds, wash us through cause us to redeem the time and understand and discern the will of the Lord. We want to be wise for you because this whole life is about your glory. And for your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.